Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Podcast. My name is Michael Van, but you can call me Mike. Today I'll be speaking with Pierre Asselin, who is a professor of history and Dwight E. Stanford Chair in the History of U.S. Foreign Relations at San Diego State University. His books include A Bitter Peace, Washington, Hanoi, and the Making of the Paris Peace Agreement, published in 2002, and Hanoi's Road to the Vietnam War, 1954 to 1965, published in 2013. Today we'll be talking about Vietnam's Vietnam's American War, a history, which was published in, excuse me, 2018 with uh, with Cambridge Press. So Pierre, good morning and welcome to New Books in History. It's 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 an honor to be here, Mike. Thanks. Thanks yeah, for having me. Yeah, and it's, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. I've known Pierre for an, a number of years and it's a really great, uh, great conversationalist. So um, we always start off these podcasts asking about the historian and how you came to be a historian. I know you touch on this in the book. You have a really interesting origin story that involves Sylvester Stallone yeah. and uh, a, con- a young, confused Quebecois boy. So, so tell me how the how the the Quebecois hockey player came to be a specialist in uh, Amer- the American War in Vietnam. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's 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 worth discussing because you know, with 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 a very kind of francophone name working on Vietnam, there's always an assumption that I'm actually French from France, and that you know, I had I had relatives in the Dien Bien Phu campaign, and so on and so forth. But but I mean, you know, nothing could be further from 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 the truth. I'm I'm actually from Quebec City in Canada, born and raised in Quebec City. I'm 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 very French Canadian as, as, as Quebecois as you could, you could, you could have it. Um, I, uh, I, I, I grew up knowing nothing about, about Asia, uh, knowing nothing about Asians. I mean, Quebec city, when I was, when I was a kid was very, very homogenous. We were all white. We're all French speaking. We're all Catholic. Uh, there was one black kid in my grade school, and then there would be one Asian kid in my in my high school. Well, it's so different than contemporary Quebec. Which Completely, is yeah, yeah, so yeah. So vibrantly multicultural. Yeah, very, exactly. And that's the thing, right? Yeah. All, all, all of these changes happen 
within within my generation. Yeah. But but so so yeah. So I never had any kind of interest in 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 Asia or much less in Vietnam, which I didn't know existed. But what happened was that in my last year of high school, um, I I went to class one day and was essentially um, it was it was the, the the teacher told us that for our term papers would we'll be working on violence in the Western world. Um, and, and I, and, and the night before I, I happened to have watched the second installment of the Rambo movies where he goes back to Vietnam to rescue POWs. Now I, again, I didn't know where he'd gone back. So, so I, I, I go to my, my, my teacher after class and I say, I, I, listen, sir, you know, I, I, I watched this movie last night. It's, it's this guy Rambo killing a bunch of Chinese people. Maybe I can work on this war of the U.S. in China. And, and then he very politely proceeded to say something along the lines of, well, you know, Pierre, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure the U.S. never actually went to war against China. I think the war you're referencing is Vietnam. And maybe you want to work on that. And so I said, well, I, I don't know Vietnam. He goes, well, another reason to work on that. You can learn something new. And so, so I ended up, you know, researching this, this, this war in Vietnam I knew nothing about. Wrote a, a 10-page paper entitled the, the Vietnam War, which was really about booby traps in the Vietnam War. You know, I still have the copy of the paper. It's almost embarrassing, but it's also kind of cute, right? Uh, and but, this, this was in high school? This was, in, yeah, last year of high school. Yeah. Year, yeah, 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 yeah. And so, but it kind of, it kind of, you know, everything kind of went from, from, from there. Uh, shortly after I was done with that paper and that course, Platoon came out. I went to see it in theaters and I knew what they meant when they talked about the Tet Offensive. I knew what they meant when they mentioned Napalm and the Viet Cong. And, and then I went to college and, and um, I, I, I. Where did you do your undergrad? I did my undergrad at um, York University in, in, in Toronto. So I, I left, I went my after high school, I left Quebec and I went to Toronto to work for a summer, essentially to, to work, make some money, but also kind of uh, uh, learn to speak English more adequately. Um, and then while in Toronto, I started thinking about maybe going to university there. I was I was I'd been accepted into Laval University in history, uh, Laval in in Quebec City. Uh, but then, but then, while I was in Toronto that summer, I started looking into going to school in Toronto. Um, again, thinking that well, it might be good for me if I could if I could stay here and 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 again, you know, learn to speak English a little a little better. And so I ended up going to signing up for school at York University. They actually have a bilingual campus called Glendon College. So I ended up there for my my undergrad. And Glendon was great because I could take courses in French or English. And so I started mostly first couple of years, mostly in French and eventually in English once I felt more, more, more comfortable. Um, I majored in history. I focused on European history. But in the midst of all of this, I took a course on Asian history with an Asian guy who turned out to be Vietnamese. And from there, my interest in, in Vietnam really, really grew. Uh, and, then, and then the professor, that, that, that Vietnamese professor in question, uh, at one point came to me and said, and said, listen, you know, if you're really into Asian history and Vietnamese history, I could maybe get you some money to go and spend the summer in the U.S. to learn Vietnamese. There was a language program called SEASI, the, yeah. Yeah, the Southeast Asian Studies Summer Institute. And he said, you know, maybe I could go there and then like really kind of start learning the language, which would, would really help me then understand the culture and the history better. And I, you know, and I, 
I, I, I liked Vietnam, I liked Asia, but not to that extent. But then I found out that 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 coming summer, the institute was going to be held in Hawaii. So then I told I told my professor once I thought, well, in that case, you know, maybe yeah, I really want to learn Vietnamese. But anyway, so so in the summer and, of 1988. Yeah, and, and listeners, um, you may not know this, but both of both Pierre and I have uh, lived a good portion of our lives yeah. in Hawaii. We're in California now, but. Yeah, we, and, uh, we, I mean, you were born in Hawaii and yeah, ended up living there yeah. for twenty five years after. Yeah. After, but so, but so, yeah. So in eighty eight, I, I went. I went to Honolulu University of Hawaii, spent the summer studying Vietnamese, uh, and and from that moment on, I was kind of hooked. I mean, that's 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 when I, I I knew that I would I would I would stay in school for as long as I can, get a PhD, uh, and 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 make the study of Vietnam basically my my life. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean it. All because of Rambo. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. In, in high school. Yeah, 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 yeah. And where did you do graduate work? I did. So I did. I did my my masters at the University of Toronto, uh, and then uh, for my PhD, ended up applying to a bunch of schools that had good Vietnam programs, and then I got accepted with money at the University of Hawaii, which I was really happy about. Went back to Hawaii, got my PhD there, and then stayed there after after I graduated and 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 worked at three different schools over the span of almost 25 years after that, before, before moving to San Diego two years ago. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's start talking about the book. Um, this is uh, Vietnam's American war. And I, I already had one um, teacher, a high school teacher in a coffee shop come up to me and say, that is the best title. <laughs> I, I, that is so simple, so graceful and does such an important restructuring for most American readers and my students need to need to think about it like that. Um, so obviously there are scores and scores of books on uh, the American war in Vietnam or the Vietnam war, however yeah. you want to call it. Um, with all due respect, why do we need another book on this war? So, so I mean, you know, I, I've, I, I, I've, I'd written a good amount about, about the war prior to, to, to writing this book. And this is really the book I've always wanted to write. Oh really? Uh, yeah, because it's, yeah, yeah it, it really is because it's it's that's the thing, right? I mean, uh, when 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 this this Vietnamese professor as an undergrad impressed upon me the fact that, you know, that the war in Vietnam means something for Westerners, but it, it means something entirely different for the Vietnamese, and 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 that's one of the reasons why he wanted me to learn Vietnamese so I could basically learn to understand that war from this other perspective from the perspective of the Vietnamese who 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 lived through it and for whom it meant a lot more than it ever did to the French or the Americans as much as it still means something to 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 the Americans and so so I'd been I'd been you know I I I worked my dissertation was about you know the negotiations to end the war and I tried to present both sides the American side and then the Vietnamese side and then I wrote some more about what was happening in Vietnam during the war but eventually I thought you know of all the books out there about the war, and you're right, I mean, there's hundreds, if not thousands of them, no one has really tried to, to write kind of a history of the war from the other side, you know, which is simple enough, right? I mean, it's it's like a comprehensive history from beginning to end, but but that 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 that, that really presents the, the 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 perspective of America's enemies. In, in in the Vietnam War. That's really what I set out to do with 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 this book is is to to give uh, to to kind of decenter the Vietnam War, at least to de-Americanize the Vietnam War, 
and 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 introduce, I guess, a Vietnamese voice in 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 that discussion we've been having about 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 the war. Uh, so so you know we call it the Vietnam War, but for for the Vietnamese, this is the American War, and hence the title. I mean, this is Vietnam's American War. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, as you know, and your your audience probably knows, I mean, you know, th- th- there are different Vietnamese factions involved in that war. And what I do in this particular book is really tell the story of the Vietnamese communist faction of of, of America's right, enemies, right. as I was saying earlier. You, you make a joke in the introductory chapter um, that uh, when you're talking about the title, uh, you say, besides Vietnam's American War makes for a much better title than the North Vietnamese communist leadership's war against the American and South Vietnamese presidential leadership over Vietnam. Yeah, exactly. So, so um, yeah, this decenters uh, the American perspective on yeah. the war. Yeah, focuses on Hanoi, but you really are focused on 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 Viet, refocus on Vietnam, but you really are focused on Hanoi and Hanoi's leadership circle, exactly. correct? Exactly, right. I mean, so so we we have, and, and this is kind of, you know, intended to complement what we've been doing for so long in this country, right? Looking at Lyndon Johnson's war, mm-hmm. looking at Richard Nixon's war, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we in, in, in our efforts to kind of understand the American war in Vietnam, we've tried to, to um, uh, uh, make sense of exactly what American policymakers were thinking. I mean, they were the ones, after all, who, who made the big decisions that, that resulted in this in this very massive U.S. involvement in Vietnam. So what I, I I'm, so what I, I've, I've been trying to do for quite some time, what I try to do again comprehensively in this book, is present how their counterparts in Hanoi were approaching these same questions of 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 dealing with the French, of 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 implementing the the the, the, the Geneva Accords, uh, and eventually of of whether or not to 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 make a move toward. Uh, armed conflict to bring about Vietnamese national reunification. Mm-hmm. And that's great and fantastic. And as someone who, myself, who's worked in the Vietnamese archives, my immediate question is, how on earth do you get access to those documents? I mean, I, I started doing my research in Vietnam in the 1990s and a totally safe subject, French French colonialism, uh, long before the uh, uh, Vietnamese achieved independence. And still it took me well over a month to get into the archives and they, I mean, I, I look like a CIA agent, I guess. So they, they were really <laughs> sussing me out for a while. And eventually let me in. And it was very, even, even that was very difficult to get documents. I mean, now it's much easier, much better. And especially in the new archive center one, but that's, in, I'm working in pre 1954. Yeah. And what everyone told me is don't even think of asking for anything after 1954 yeah. and don't, you know, it's like the old, uh, Faulty Towers skit, don't talk about the war. You know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, like yeah. That's just, that That will get you on the radar screen, get yeah. you in trouble. So here you come along. You're Canadian, so yeah. maybe you got a bit more privilege there, but but you um, but you come along and you're, you're diving into some of the most sensitive topics. So how were you able to get access in Hanoi? Which archives did you work in? And- uh, yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah, the, the post-45 archive, yeah. post-54. But I think that that's the thing that, that I think your audience needs to understand, right? Is that, is that as much as we, as, as we think the Vietnamese celebrate their remarkable victory over the United States, in Vietnam, it's not an easy topic to engage intellectually. 
um, uh, yeah, the, 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 the Vietnamese defeated the United States and, and, and the authorities are very proud of this. The Communist Party is very proud of this. But for the average Vietnamese, you know, there, there, there was really nothing good about that period. So many people died. So, so, so the party will have to create a certain narrative about the war that, that, that has to be consistent with itself and that cannot be challenged. And so, so, so for, for Vietnamese scholars themselves, dealing with that subject matter is very, very difficult because, because the moment you introduce a new idea, the party is likely to kind of start paying attention to what you write and get in the way of what you do. Uh, it it can be a little easier for foreign scholars, but then again, if the idea is to you know present the Vietnamese perspective on the basis of Vietnamese source material, uh, then then you kind of encounter the same the same the same the same problem, and and it's and as you say, it's it's challenging because of that because ultimately in 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 tackling the U.S. war in Vietnam, you're likely to end up challenging this narrative that the party has been constructing and presenting for decades now. Uh, so so um, we have this, this archive in Hanoi, which is different from the one you've, you've worked from, that, that essentially um, has in its custody the, the documents starting from the time Ho Chi Minh proclaims the independence of the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. Uh, when you're looking at the period, the documents for 45 to 54, kind of, you know, the return of the French, those are relatively easily accessible. When you get into the post-54 kind of American period, then it's it's a lot more challenging to get access to those materials. Um, and, and, and yeah, I mean, I mean, as much as the archivists themselves want to help you, there are rules in place that are intended to, I, I, I think, deter scholars, Vietnamese and foreign, from really engaging that time, that time period. So the, the first time I went to the archives in Hanoi, to this archive number three in Hanoi, was uh, in the mid-90s when I was uh, putting my dissertation together. Do you remember what year? I think it was in 1994. Five. It was either ninety four or ninety five. Okay, so that was a year or two before I got there. But that was yeah. That was uh, for people who visited Vietnam. That was a very different Hanoi it, than the Hanoi you're gonna you'll see today. I mean, very very yeah. Very very few cars. Uh, still relatively few motorcycles yeah. at that point. Yeah, um, yeah. Motorcycles really took off about ninety seven. Yeah, and it's bicycles it, and some Soviet trucks and no six foot white guys walking around. No, um, no, no. I mean, I, I'd been to Vietnam. The first time I was there was 89. 89, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, and so there were white guys around, but they were they almost were speaking Russian. Exactly. <laughs> they were, and everyone assumed I was, I was, I was, I was Soviet at that yeah, point. Yeah. Um, and so, and then when I went back, I mean, it had changed a lot by, by the mid nineties, but as you say, it, it, it's relative to how Vietnam is today. I mean, it was a completely different country. I mean, you really felt like you were on a different planet. It wasn't just that you were in a different country. You felt, like, based on my limited traveling experience at the time, I remember like like riding a bicycle and looking at the moon and and it, it, it was the first thing that looked familiar to me, you know, uh, uh, yeah. in, 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 in like two or three weeks. Yeah. So, but so, 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 so yeah. So, so I, 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 I went to Vietnam to research for my dissertation in, I think it was in 1995. Uh, I, I spent a good amount of my time just working at the National Library from, from published materials. And then, and then I thought, well, I found out there was an archive and that, that you could technically access it. And I thought, okay, maybe, maybe I, should, I should try to, 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 to get in there. 
Um, and 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 that's when I realized, wow, this is really tough, as as people had suggested. Was the archive headquarters adjacent to the library? No, no, they were okay. in, in, that's, in. That's in, where the, the colonial archive was. The pre fifty four was there in the mid nineties. Yeah, no, they right were now. they were in a different part of town. Yeah. So there, uh, there already been that separation of archives one or, or yeah. one, two, and three. Yeah, exactly. Right. right. Yeah. One, the colonial archive in Hanoi. Yeah. Two, namely like the 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 the, the archives of the former South Vietnamese yeah. regime in that Saigon. Regime in and three, like the the the, the, the modern, the post forty five uh, communist stuff in 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 Hanoi. So no, so that archive was in a, in, a, in a different part of town, and then and then I I I went there. And then I was told, okay, you can't just come in. You need a letter of introduction. And so then I, I went to the university that was sponsoring my visit at the time, Social Sciences, Humanities. Um, and then I got that letter of introduction. So then I, I went back and then they said, okay, you got the introduction. What do you want to work on? I said, I want to work on the American war. Sorry, can't help you. And then and then they sent me home again. Then I went back to the university. I said, listen, you know, they I got, had the, the letter, but then they said, no. And then they said, and then that's when I got my first lesson into, you know, how sensitive the American war remains, especially from the standpoint of, of the authorities. So, so then, then it was suggested that, that, that instead of saying, I'm going to work on the American war, I come up with a topic that looks more innocent. Uh, So, so I tried another topic, went back, they told, they rejected again, my, my application to enter. And eventually I settled on, on, implementation of the Geneva Accords. And and that got me in. Mm. But then so I got in and then and then I was really excited. But then I got to to I had to wait another couple of weeks because you know just seeing the index for the documents was going to take two weeks. And then I saw the index, I asked for documents and then that took another month and a half. Yeah. I mean it was just it was such a slow process. And so I, I remember this well. Yeah, I'd spent a lot of time in the mid '90s just hanging out, waiting for my documents. And that's the thing, you know. I mean, you're you're a grad student, so you figure. And I had time, which which I you know I was I was really lucky to have. So so I and I you know I I just and you know you feel you feel insecure. You feel like well, at least I got in. So so you 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 abide by what you're told, mm-hmm. right? And then they tell you to come back in a month, you go back in a month, and then they tell you, well, come back in two weeks, you go back in two weeks. So I was very patient that way. I'm not sure I would have that patience anymore today, but <laughs> but I did I did everything I was supposed to do. And eventually I did get I, I did I did I did get in. Uh, it wasn't particularly productive, but at least I knew how the system worked. And then and then you know I would start going to Vietnam more regularly. Um, after I got my, my my first job shortly after I graduated. Uh, and then over time, it became very slowly a little easier. Um, but but yeah, for, for several years after that, I would have to wait at least a month before actually reading documents. Um, but I, you know, I was always nice. I was always smiling, and and now I'm at a point where I can I can show up in the morning and read stuff by the afternoon. Oh wow! Which yeah. which is yeah. I mean, it's it's so. But you know, I mean, we're talking about basically two decades of building relationships yeah. Yeah. with with the people at the archives, and, and and there's been a sea change in the the archives. I mean, I the the pre fifty four material um, took me almost two months to get get in. I presented my papers on the first day and it was almost two months. So I worked in the national library, kept coming back every week and they politely say, come back next yeah. week. And, yeah. 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 And, um, you know, eventually got in and it was just so slow. Like I, 
request, you know, they request all the documents you want. You can only, no more than 20. So request them, give them the list and say, okay, come back in two weeks. Yeah. Oh God. And then, and then uh, only the documents could go back in one batch. I couldn't pick and choose. Yeah. yeah, Go back and look at something. No. So, and, and then you can only, once you're done with all those documents, come back the next day, drop a new list, yeah. wait another time. Now it's lovely. The new archive building, you walk right in, the staff are much more friendly than they were to me in the nineties. And, See, and I, mean, I was getting work done the first day. It was yeah. fantastic. So, but I think that's the thing. So, so, so three is kind of like this for me now, but when yeah. young people come in, Still, very, yeah, yeah, very often yeah. Yeah, there's that, there's that element, right? I mean, it's, it's, but it was, you know, I, that, that's the one thing I look back upon the whole thing and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of happy about the way I've, I've, I've dealt with things. You know, I, I, I was always nice. I never tried to bribe anyone, which some people said I should do, mm-hmm. but I never wanted to do that. And and now, especially now, I don't want to do it because, you know, if, if you start that practice, right, then you make it more difficult for yeah. grad students to then see the kind of stuff that, that they want to see. Or, and or, or you could potentially really offend. Um, yeah, and, uh, and you're someone. right. So exactly. I, I was I was told that, too, in the mid 90s. And so they told me, I don't know who it was. I should track them down that said, OK, take a couple cartons of Marlboros, like real, yeah. real Marlboro Reds, real American cigarettes. So, and I'm a militant anti-smoker. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I yeah, took yeah. Three cartons and got there and realized the last thing I was ever going to try to do was bribe yeah. anybody like that. Like, I don't know how to do it. And like, just, it was, you know, they were very difficult, but very professional. So I wound up for the year I was there, all these cartons of cigarettes and I wound up just tipping them to the, uh, the, uh, Zayom drivers. The, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. What, 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 what I do now and what I've been doing is basically like a very Vietnamese thing, right? It's like, is like I would go, I started doing that several years ago. I would go and do my research on the last day, bring either cake or fruit yeah, to thank yeah, them. Yeah, and so, right. So, so at that point, I don't need anything else, you know, I, but here it is. And so, and then the next time you come in, they, people remember, and I, and I keep doing the same thing yeah. or take them out to lunch yeah. on the last day. Right? That, that is much more of a, a polite thing. Yeah, than exactly. Like weird sort of Western notion of transactional bribe yeah. that I was told. I was terrified. Anyway, I, I wanted to uh, spend a good chunk of time in the podcast talking about that because I don't know if um, most listeners or anyone who hasn't done research in Vietnam understands the obstacles. Yeah. To, uh, I mean, there's the linguistic obstacle. Vietnamese is a very difficult language. Um, and then there's simply the access to documents. Um in, in levels of difficulty that I think now in this post-Cold War world, most uh, researchers don't really have to think about. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, and I, I don't know how it is for, but archives, you can't take pictures. So, no. so, so it's it's either you know you, you I mean I mean it's pen and paper which which I'm fine with because that's or else you got you got to kind of petition again to get documents copied and then that can be denied. You can maybe you can see a document, but then it's not necessarily going to mean that that they'll allow you to make a copy. Right. So it's it's all and 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 that's and that's what's what's kind of interesting is that you find that after people have gone to do research for their dissertation, they never go back. There's only a handful of us who are like kind of I would call like senior professors or who keep going to the archives and we see each other every year. Like Pete Zinneman from yeah, Berkeley, yeah. Christian Lenz from North Carolina, yeah. uh, Mitch. You, you talked about you know or you were mentioning that 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 Mitch Asso is one of the guys yeah. you you've yeah. talked to. I, I see Mitch once in a while, but it's always the same people. Yeah. You 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 know you it's it's, it's just a handful of us, and then otherwise it's just grad students. The true the because, true archive rats. Yeah, I guess so, right? Because I mean, we either because you know we, we have the, the the time, maybe we have the financing, 
but I think I think we all in our different ways that kind of have the patience, you know, mm-hmm. and then and so 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 yeah, that's it's it's kind of a, one of the striking elements about about working in the archives there. Yeah. But at the same time, when you keep showing up, the people there respect you in return and that that might be why things are a little easier right it's like in professional relations yeah yeah yeah, exactly and you're a friend of the archive right and so so so, yeah so um what did you find i mean to uh to talk about the book a a bit more generally at first what were some of the big aha moments from this research for again a a subject that there's a, a large body of literature on so so i mean one of the elements that I, I, you know, that that I think is kind of interesting, and that that your audience might be familiar with, this this whole idea of the, you know, the Vietnamese having a long tradition of resistance to foreign aggression, mm-hmm. right? And 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 us in the if West, you, if you go to the Vietnamese museums, yeah. they tell you this. You yeah, go the, you go to the Army Museum in Hanoi, and they'll, you know, there's there's a clear line in that yeah. museum's narrative from resisting the Chinese occupation, yeah. the the Mongols, all the way up to the Americans. It's it's you know their narrative is this is what the Vietnamese do. Yeah, they do not mess with us. Exactly, and the, and the, and, the, and the thing is this right? It's like when when Americans teach about the war, that's usually the same narrative they recycle to explain why the Vietnamese won. Mm-hmm. Well, we're talking about a people that defeated the Chinese like sixty times, defeated the Mongols, defeated the French. So of course, they were going to defeat the Americans. Yeah, What's, Walter Subject uh, in the Big Lebowski, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. a, a worthy adversary, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so what 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 people don't understand is that this whole narrative was actually fabricated by Vietnam's communist authorities during the early stages of the American War. There's no, it's it, it's a myth. It, this idea that the Vietnamese come together whenever they're invaded from the outside, it's it's just a myth. It's not supported by the facts of history, but it's a myth that was constructed during the American war and really very heavily perpetuated for the as as a way of motivating people uh domestically, but also kind of suggesting to the outside world that that the Vietnamese are proud people, they're very, very nationalistic people. Again, all of which is untrue, right? Well, the Vietnamese are very proud, but the idea that somehow their nationalism developed earlier than others, this it's all it's all myth. But but and and so you know in terms of like the things that are interesting is that to me it's like the the we think of the Vietnamese, especially that these communist leaders as, you know, people who came from the countryside who knew nothing about the world. Boy, they understood the world better than, 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 than American leaders ever did. And they knew how to play that world. They knew how to manipulate public opinion domestically, internationally, through the creation of these kinds of grand narratives, which which were so successful that even though the war is behind us, we still use them to teach the war. I mean, right. I mean, you know, I mean, how many, how many of 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 us who who teach the war haven't used that whole narrative of, or oh, the Vietnamese developed nationalism early on? The Vietnamese had fought the Mongols, so of course they were going to beat the Americans, and it's 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 all fabrication, right. and it's and it's it's it, and it's all a product of of this this construction by Hanoi of a grand narrative to justify and the specifically war, specifically in the late fifties, early sixties. Yeah, exactly, just... exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's 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 fat to me. It's so so the 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 the, the in terms of like the, the things that kind of struck me as I was doing my research, on the one hand, it's just the the the, the knack of these leaders to create, to manipulate information, to advance their purposes. It's just unbelievable. And I think this information war they wage goes a long way toward explaining why they win in the end. Yeah, I think they, 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 they I think they prove much better than the Americans at manipulating information with a view to 
rallying, mobilizing support for their cause at home and 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 abroad. You know, I mean, this this whole it's, it's Clausewitz. It's close oh it's, yeah, it's it, what war is an extension of politics. Exactly, right? and they're exactly. they're doing better at the political game. And 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 and, that, and that's and that's the key, Mike. That's the key right there. If you try, you know, when when people say like, well, if the U.S. could have bombed more, if the U.S. could have, I mean, I mean, by Hanoi's own account, a million North Vietnamese and and Viet Cong troops died during the war. Died, not, and then and then as as we all know, right, about fifty eight thousand Americans perished. So so. To me, ask any general, right? For 58,000, you kill a million. Will you take those odds? I mean, absolutely. So militarily, the U.S. did everything right in Vietnam. There's nothing more it could have done to win the war. But that's the thing is that the Vietnamese, through political means and diplomatic means, were basically able to negate the impact of the military struggle because because they recognized that, that, that this war didn't have to be fought on only one front, the military front, but could also be fought politically, domestically, and then and then diplomatically internationally. Then 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 they they they, they could more easily isolate their enemies and rally their 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 own people. And that's to me that's the key. That's where the Vietnam War was won. It wasn't won on the battlefields of the South. It was it was won like in the, in the courtroom of public opinion within Vietnam and internationally mm-hmm. through this clever manipulation of 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 information. I mean, you know, this idea that oh, you know, we just we're just poor Vietnamese who just want peace, and then you know these images of if you look at the images that came out of Hanoi during the war, right, of North Vietnam, it's always a woman. Mm-hmm. It's oh, always yeah. women. Yeah. Right, and all of this is deliberate. These yeah. these photos of you know these big American POWs being escorted yeah, by females. Very diminutive women. It, yeah. It's yeah. it's all staged. You know, they, they would they would take the biggest POW they had, find the smallest woman they could find, and then and then dress them up, take pictures, and then and the world ran with it. Yeah, I mean it's it's and it's really, still to this day. If you go to oh, the yeah. project I'm working on now on uh, history and memory in uh, Southeast Asian museums about the Cold War, you go to the War Remnants Museum. And those images of like pilots that are about my size, 6'3", 250 pounds, being taken prisoner by a four foot eight Vietnamese farm girl. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, they're 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 sh- striking images, and they really play on the gender component. But it's it's shrewd propaganda and shrewd moves. And it, but but it worked. I mean, yeah. so so basically, like you know, you have this this image of a very feminine Vietnam on the one hand, like you know unfairly victimized by the big bad americans yeah. and that really went i mean from 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 the very beginning i mean th- that that's one of the the obstacles the americans had to overcome which i mean i would argue they failed to do they they never i i, I think that 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 the problem with 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 the way johnson and nixon managed the wars they never tried to make themselves accountable to the rest of the world to the extent that hanoi did or at least they never tried to manipulate public opinion to the extent that hanoi did yeah. So it's yeah, yeah it's it's a, it's, a, it's a really interesting. So the, the information aspect of all of this. Yeah. So so you talked about how much of the American historiography is uh, Nixon's war. Yeah. Or LBJ's war. Um, so you know, for primarily American listeners who uh, know about the the war, we know that on the Vietnamese side, it is Ho Chi Minh's war, and Ho Chi Minh ran the whole war. Uncle Ho, right? For he's the the hero of the left and the enemy of the right. Yeah. So it's all Ho Chi Minh's war and. What, so what, why why are you laughing and giggling so, as I say this right now? Explain how so that this might is, be a mistaken so, idea. So so here's the problem, right? I mean, so for you're right for 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 most for 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 most observers and students of that war, you know, 
Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon's counterpart, was was Ho Chi Minh. So so and and this was Ho Chi Minh's war, as you point out, right? So so the number one problem with that is that is that is that even if you're not aware of what was going on in Hanoi, right? I mean, it's it's it was public knowledge from the time it happened. Ho Chi Minh died in 1969, right? So so. And if you think about it, right, the war, let's say the American war begins in 65, right? Ho dies in 69. That's four years. But the war doesn't end until 75. There's still a lot of war left to be waged, right? I mean, more than half the war hasn't unfolded yet, yet Ho Chi Minh is dead. And we all know this. How the heck can we claim this was Ho Chi Minh's war if he wasn't around for more than half of it on the one hand, right? Now, beyond that, when, when, when we look more carefully at the Vietnamese perspective, it becomes obvious, again, working from Vietnamese sources, that Ho Chi Minh wasn't even there at the beginning of the war. Essentially, what happens is this, right? So, so Ho Chi Minh leads the effort, the war against the French from 46 to 54, right? You'll, you'll say that's his war? That's, yeah, that's that, his that's war. And, and, that, and that's really where he distinguishes himself. Yeah. I think yeah. that's, that's, that's Ho's kind of golden moment here, right? And then in 54... Uh, uh, in the aftermath of the, the, the big Dien Bien Phu victory, uh, Ho decides to uh, negotiate with France and then to accept the Geneva Accords calling for the partition of Vietnam at the 17th parallel. Um, that, by the way, creates a lot of anger within his, the ranks of his own army and, and, and within the Communist Party. Many people thought that they should just continue the fight until they win everything unconditionally. Um, but, but Ho thinks, no, we need a break. And then besides, you know, there's a sense that maybe diplomatically we can solve this, right? And then and then it's 54. You describe him as being, consistently as being moderate, moderate and yeah. cautious. Yeah, he's very cautious. Which he's are very, very really cautious. interesting adjectives that I think challenge many Amer- yeah, yeah, America's yeah. received wisdom about. No, absolutely. I mean, Ho. even during the war against the French, I mean, he's very, yeah, he, he's, he's very cautious. Like, for example, you know, before Dien Bien Phu, he's going to tell, he's going to tell his general, the very famous Vong Yen Zap, that you're only going to attack if you know you can win. Ho Chi Minh is emphatic about this. Like, if there's any, if there's an ounce of doubt that we might not win, then don't attack. And sure enough, like, like, I don't know if, 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 if you were aware of this, but, but, a day before Dien Bien Phu, the campaign was supposed to begin, Zap canceled the whole thing. This was in January, right? That, yeah, yeah, yeah. That in was January. the first, I think, yeah, or yeah, late January or something yeah. like that. But basically, because Ho Chi Minh goes to him, okay, so you, you're, you're attacking tomorrow, but that's because, as, as I've told you, right, you're sure of victory, right? Then Zap goes home, thinks about it, and says, well, actually, I'm not sure. So he can't, he scraps the whole plan. Well, postpones it. Postpones it, yeah, yeah, yeah. Until, yeah. When, when the until, until they start in in, uh, in March, March the March seventh, right? So yeah, for several months, puts this major assault on. Yeah, the- and and Zap would write about this and call it you know my most difficult decision, very yeah. dramatic. Yeah. But and then it's during that time that they kind of embed their artillery on the side of mountains, which which did did have a, a meaningful impact on the outcome of yeah. the campaign. Yeah. At any rate, so 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 so. So Ho Chi Minh really distinguishes himself during the war against the French. But then after that, there's a sense from within the, the, the party itself that he's making a lot of mistakes because he's too cautious. Like instead of continuing the war against France, he, 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 he negotiates. And then when, it's, when it becomes clear that the agreement, the Geneva formula is failing, Ho Chi Minh refuses to resume armed struggle. Um, and so, so, so it creates a tension within the party, and it allows for the rise of 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 a faction 
I, I, I refer to as hardline or militant, led by this guy named Lays One or Laid One, um, uh, uh, if, if, if you're not really familiar with, with, with Vietnamese. But at any rate, so, so this guy Lays One will essentially start this revolt within the party which triumphs in 63. And where's, where's Lei Zuan from? He's from the South. From the South. Yeah, and he's that's... A, he's a Southerner. He's a Southerner. And then, and then he spends much of the war against France fighting in the South. And then when, when Ho Chi Minh accepts, it, accepts the Geneva Accords, basically, you know, the North has now been liberated, but the South returns to the French. So, so for Lei Zuan and other Southerners, there's a sense that, well, why did we fight for eight years, lose all these people. I mean, it, it's that there's tremendous anger among Southerners because, well, good for the North, it's now free, but what about us, right? And 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 sure enough, you know, the, the regime in the South that's established after after Geneva, the, the regime of, of Ngo Ding Ziem, really, really goes after communists uh, who are now very vulnerable and have no measure, no way of protecting themselves. And this only kind of amplifies the frustration of Lei Zuan mm-hmm. and other Southerners who managed to survive these, 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 these anti-communist campaigns initiated by, 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 by Ziem. So, 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 and over time, yeah, this consensus develops within the party that maybe Ho Chi Minh is not the right man for the job. Um, and what I argue in the book is that essentially Within a month after Ziem gets overthrown in Saigon in November of 63, there's a what I call a silent coup in Hanoi that leads to the overthrow of Ho Chi Minh and his replacement with this guy named Lei Zuan. And, and Lei Zuan is very shrewd, right? I mean, he understands that he can't kill Ho because, I mean, Ho has become the face of the Vietnamese revolution. So, so what they do is they basically marginalize him. Yeah. They sideline him. But and I also point out that contrary to what we may think about Stalinist regimes, Ho Chi Minh did not kill Lei Zuan. No, no. That, it, that, 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 that really interesting section of the book that there is that um, dissent allowed within the highest inner circle of the party. I mean, this is what democratic centralism is supposed yeah. to be, right? To discussion and debate within the highest ranks, but once the party line is decided, follow it, correct? Yeah, exactly, exactly. But, 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 but he, like, it's unimaginable that. So, uh, this could happen in Stalin's uh, Soviet Union or, 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 or Kim, Mao's China. Yeah, or Kim Il-sung's North Korea, right? I mean, it's, 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 but I think, and, and, and again, right, to me, that, that's another, it's another, it's, it's, it's further evidence that Ho was a moderate, right? Mm-hmm. That he, he's, he's very, he's very flexible. He's not as, but then that's the thing. Yeah. Once Lays One takes over. I think, I think there were some Trotskyites in the 1930s who didn't think that. Who got yeah, yeah, no, you're, you're, you're right. I mean, the 30s and, and mid 40s are very interesting in terms of the assassination of yeah. rivals. Yeah. But, but, but go on. But we, we got a much, I think, yeah, a much milder hope by, by, by the mid 1950s. A hope was much more open to, to, to diplomatic solutions and engagement of his enemies, um, and that 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 as I was that alienates some of the members of the party, including these Southerners mm-hmm. and and Lei Zuan in particular. Yeah. But but yes, so how, how's Lei Zuan's personality different than Ho Chi Minh? So I mean, so he's, he's he's a much more taciturn character. This is a guy, you know, unlike Ho Chi Minh, who spent thirty years abroad and spoke, you know, French and Chinese and Thai and Russian and. You know, I mean, Lei Zuan has never really been anywhere uh, except except 
the South, you know, I mean, I mean, coming north for consultation was the, the most exhaustive and, and travel. And he's one of these figures in the Vietnamese Communist Party that um, some of the most important lines on his resume are time spent in jail, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, French yeah. jails. Uh, was he in South Vietnamese jail? It, it was in various jails. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Including including some of the worst jails, the worst and, colonial and, jails. And, and then that becomes really important in yeah. party leadership. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, and these, these are people who are not hardened by long nights reading uh, Das Kapital, but yeah. rather long years in, uh, in suffering in these prisons. And you bring up, and this is the thing that I think is important for the audience to, to understand, is that is that, you know, all this focus on Ho Chi Minh and how much, how great Ho Chi Minh is, within his own party, a lot of people never really cared much for Ho Chi Minh, which, which is very interesting. I mean, it's because, I mean, here's a guy who spends 30 years overseas traveling and then, and then yeah, so, so now we say, well, he was studying the revolution. But then during those 30 years, most of his comrades are dying, being, you know, incarcerated, being tortured, being, you know, so, and, and then, and then, then the only reason the whole gets to assume leadership of the party starting in 41, 42 is because everyone else has been either killed or is in jail. So, so he's kind of an opportunist, right? I mean, he, he returns after 30 years in 1941 with everyone pretty much dead already. So, so, so then he, he can claim leadership of the communist party. But there's, he'll always have his detractors, yeah. and so and for people like Lei Zuan, I mean, that's that's how I really think they were seeing Ho Chi Minh. That that yeah, he's leading the party. He's a good fit for the revolution. But but he, you know, he hasn't suffered as much as we have. Yeah. He doesn't know yet. I mean, thirty. Think about it. Thirty years abroad. Yeah, it's exceptional. But from, but you know, this idea that oh, he's, he's such a nationalist. Well, if you're a real hardcore nationalist. What the hell are you doing spending all this time in France? And you know what I mean? And, and yet yeah, he's studying, but he's not fighting like some of these other guys are doing. I mean, Les One is bleeding mm-hmm. on a regular basis. And, and here now he's supposed to play second fiddle to Ho Chi Minh. So in 63, given the chance, he takes over. And then, and then, and then the party assumes a very different identity. Uh, there, there, there's, no, there's no tolerance for dissent. And and now we see kind of the 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 the, the institutionalization of a real Stalinist regime yeah. where people get killed, thrown in jail for disagreeing with the party. Under Lian Zuan's leadership. So he he comes to power in this bloodless coup in sixty three. Yeah. Late sixty three. And what is what is his title and what will he re- So so he's he becomes so in in, in nineteen sixty, officially he's, he's first secretary of the Communist Party. But again, you know, even though he's got the title, he doesn't have the power because Ho Chi Minh is around. But by '63, he's got the title and the power. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, and then, and then Ho Chi Minh ends up just being like a face of the revolution, much like Vong Zap, the famous general who plays no role during the American War right. other than, right. you know, being again just like Ho Chi Minh, a face of the revolution and and somewhat of a moderate, right? Didn't he yeah. after the the disastrous land reform campaign, which is a whole separate issue we can't really get into? But Ziap came in and and tried to sort things out. He tried that. to sort things out. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, and, and he's, but then, but then one, Lays one can't stand him. Lays one Lays absolutely one hates, hates Vong and Zap in part because Zap never spent the amount of time in jail yeah. that, that he and, and, and this other little clique of leaders uh, who assume uh, control of the party after 63 have, yeah. have experienced. Well, 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 Pierre and I, and probably many of our listeners love Zap because he was a brilliant man who started his professional career 
as a history teacher. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's the, this is our guy. <laughs> yeah, but but that's that's the thing, right? I mean, and and one of the things that that Liz one will accuse Ho Chi Minh and guys like Zap of is being basically of a bourgeois background, yeah. and not really understanding yeah. what what real suffering is. Yeah. So it all contributes to these changes that yeah. take place in 63, yeah. 64. And, and Lay Zon will run the party and the country until his death in 1986. Yeah, which is, I mean, 23 years. Yeah. And, and, and Mike, this, so this is the stunning part, right? Here's a guy who runs a country for 23 years, right? And I mean, and again, whatever, whatever you know, Hanoi has tried to do in terms of like suggesting Ho Chi Minh was in charge the whole time. I mean, I mean, how can we ignore the fact that for 23 years, this guy basically was the general secretary of the Vietnamese Communist Party? Why have we not paid closer attention to this? Why are history books constantly re referencing Ho Chi Minh and Vong and Zap mm -hmm. when in fact this other guy is presumably the head of the party? But, it's, but but by his design, right? Oh yeah, like they, they used Ho Chi Minh and to a lesser degree uh, Von Nguyen Zap as these friendly figureheads. I mean, I mean, so I have to ask you, I'm, and I've, I think I've observed this in action at a conference we were at in Hanoi a few years ago, where there was uh, some kerfuffling and yeah, yeah, raised yeah, eyebrows yeah. and a bit of a heated discussion uh, when you were presenting your. Um, your research conclusions. How has this analysis uh, been received in Hanoi? Well, it's, where, where there's pictures of Ho Chi Minh everywhere. When I was teaching in the '90s, I had a picture of Ho Chi Minh in my classroom, and finally yeah. told my students one day, as I got to know them pretty well, like, you know, it is kind of odd for me to have be teaching this picture, and they're like, "Well, how, how could you look at look look in his eyes?" They literally said to me, look into his eyes. He's so kind and gentle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. They, this cult of personality truly is successful. It really is, absolutely. And and they use it, and as you say, and one himself will try to perpetuate it because it serves his purposes. But so so you, you talk about conferences in Hanoi, right? So again, when I was younger, I was always careful of what I would say. The older I get, the more comfortable I am saying what I really think. And usually what happens, it's 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 a dance at the conference, right? I'll say my thing about Lei one and Ho Chi Minh being marginalized. My Vietnamese counterparts will suggest that publicly in front of other colleagues and students that, you know, Professor Asselin has studied Vietnam a long time, but there are some things he doesn't understand, including the great role that Ho Chi Minh played. And then we'll go have beer afterwards, and then I'll be told, you know, your points about Lei one. I agree with them, but we can't talk about them, right? Yeah. And, so, and then, and then that's the thing is that they'll tell me more about Lay's one and things he did to sideline Ho to play to play the system, yeah, yeah. and that's that's what I mean when I say this is the book I've always wanted to write because over the years, I've I've heard a lot of really interesting stories about Ho Chi Minh, about Lay's one, about what's going on within the party, but of course, none of this stuff has been published. And 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 as much as I've, I've I've been able to access documents, I've never been able to access the real party documents that would shed light on these internal debates, mm. right? But but because I was writing a general history, I didn't have to reference every statement I made, as we do in an academic monograph, yeah. right? So 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 I think I think that the, the book is rich because of this, because you're talking about not just stuff I got from the archives, but stories I've been told. You know, which I know are true because because they've been corroborated, 
about about what's going on, but but which will never be published as long as Vietnam is under this particular system. Mm-hmm. So you, you know, uh, this is really interesting. This will be really interesting, I think, for your audience. So we know a lot about Americans who got drafted and fought in Vietnam, and 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 you know, as opposed to the Vietnamese, which was an all nor- no, the North Vietnamese army, which was all volunteer, patriotic duty, all volunteers, yeah, right? Yeah. So so. It's true. It's absolutely true that overwhelmingly, the the young men in the North Vietnamese Army were volunteers. Uh, but but in reality, it's slightly different. Essentially, what would happen is this, right? I mean, I mean, you, you go to class one day. You're 17, 18 years old, right? Um, teacher tells you, well, you know, the state needs you, so so. Um, you're going to be drafted, right? Unless, of course, you volunteer. Now you're likely to have a better position. You'll make your family proud. You'll make the nation proud. And so who wants to volunteer? And then Mike says, well, I'll volunteer. And then Pierre is Mike's best friend. Well, okay, I'll, and then that's basically, I mean, if you don't volunteer, you're going to get drafted, right? It's like, so, so you volunteer because it looks better, mm-hmm. right? Than waiting for your, your, your draft papers, which as it turns out, when you talk to Americans was very often the same rationale, right? There's a I sense that- say, I, know, you can, I know a number of individuals, that same story. So that's the thing, right? Because the sense is that if you wait to get drafted, for sure, you end up infantry army. Mm-hmm. If you volunteer- Maybe just maybe you end up on an aircraft carrier or driving a truck exactly. in Germany like Elvis, you know. Yeah, and, and it, of course it really if ever happened, but you had yeah. this idea, right? So so that's the thing. So in this sense, it's an all volunteer army when we talk about the North. But but realistically, it, it t- turns out most people didn't want to be there. And and we actually have now there's a there's a uh, a Vietnamese student who's done his PhD here in the U.S. who's looking at this. He's he's conducted interviews. Uh, uh, basically underground interviews mm-hmm. with North Vietnamese veterans. And basically 80% of the people he's talked to have confessed that they never wanted to become party to the war. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when he asked them, what would you call the war? Do you call it the American war? Do you call it 80% call it something along the lines of that miserable war? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's not so, the... Uh... What I've seen in the propaganda, exactly right, and and this is this is again like in terms of of how Hanoi, you know, I was talking about information, right, and you know, to those Americans who think, well, you know, it was their country, so they they didn't mind sacrificing for it, you know, that the authorities in Hanoi don't reveal the extent of the casualties they suffered during the war until after the war, for much of the war, uh, even if they know that a whole unit has been wiped out, they won't tell their relatives they're all dead. They'll, they'll suggest that, no, 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 things are going great. We killed 5,000 Americans this week. You know, and if they report the death of an individual, it's usually to say, well, this guy died saving the lives of 200 people by throwing himself in front of a machine gun, right? So, so there's, there's this, they perpetuate these notions that we're losing very few people and the Americans are losing people by the, by, 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 by the thousands, so, so, and there's no way of verifying if that's true because Hanoi completely controls the flow of information into and out of the country, right? So, but then when the war is over, people expect their relatives to come home. They're not showing up. And only at that point do they appreciate the cost of that 
war? Mm-hmm. Do they realize how expensive it was? So, 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 but during the war, the fact that casualties aren't reported basically allows Hanoi to sustain popular support, at least to some degree, for its war effort. Mm-hmm. You know, so so people never in North Vietnam never see the, the body bags, right, as they do in the United States. Um, soldiers who've been who've been seriously injured, seriously wounded, have to spend the rest of the war in sanctuaries in Laos, Cambodia, or in China. You don't want basically don't crippled streets, exactly. Yeah, you don't yeah. want people missing create, limbs create, walking create around. Defeatism. Exactly. That's yeah. exactly it. Well, what about the impact of the American bombing in the north? So, so it's it's. So we don't know that the and this is this one of the things that I've been looking for for a long time. Mm. North, the, the authorities have never released uh, casualty figures. Uh, my sense is that uh, it it it. I mean, the bombing killed civilians, but not on the scale that that we think. Um, and the Vietnamese themselves will tell you this because, as it turns out, most most cities were evacuated during the war. Um, so, so, um, people were in the countryside, um, and, and that helped minimize the impact on, on, on the civilian population. But, you know, having said that, you still, still thousands, possibly tens of thousands of civilians who die because of, of the bombing, but it's, it's, it was never, I think on the scale that, that, that I think we, 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 we've written about in, in our, in our, in our histories. Um, this is kind of interesting when, in 1964, and, and we know this from the documentary record, when Hanoi is starting to send North Vietnamese combat units into the south, there's great concern about the fact that the civilian population up north does not care about what's happening in the south. We know this from the documentary record. Hanoi is concerned that as major combat operations are underway in the South, starting in late 64, early 65, before the Americans themselves joined the fight, that the people in the North are not behind this. And so so, so Hanoi is trying to figure out how do we rally people? How do we rile people up so that they'll support the war, they'll volunteer to go and fight for the war? Mm-hmm. And Hanoi is really struggling with this until the U.S. starts bombing, the bombing uh, uh, really played into 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 Hanoi's hands in the sense that now people had cause to support the war and to to volunteer to go and fight. Right. So the American rationale for bombing northern Vietnam was that the North was supplying guns and 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 troop support to the Viet Cong trying to overthrow the regime in Saigon. And 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 yeah, perhaps that made the bombing legitimate. But the average man, woman in northern Vietnam had no idea of any of this based on what they were hearing from the authorities, they hadn't done anything. And the Americans in typical angry imperialist fashion had just decided to bomb them because that's what the Americans do. They bomb people right. for right. no reason. Yeah. Yeah. All that propaganda. I always think of that some village and, you know, outside of Ving or somewhere that, you know, they get, they're getting the steady stream of propaganda about American imperialism. And that makes no sense for this small village until one day a B-52 comes by and incinerates half the village. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Su- suddenly, 
that, that village is going to rally around the flag. They, they will, and that's the thing, right? But 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 the, the the so so maybe the Americans are bombing the village because that's a transshipment point for mm -hmm. for for supplies into the south. But quite possibly, if you're from that village, you weren't aware of that. And as far as you're concerned, this 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 was that uh, you got bombed, you know, for no reason. Yeah. So and, and it's bombing is not an accurate science. No, it's I mean, not. It's not. And there's so many lies about air power in the 20th century. And that's and that's and we've had in a number of studies that have been have been have been published, suggesting that the more you bomb, the more you embolden your enemy. Absolutely. World Cor War II. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Across right. the board. Yeah. I, I mean, so and there was a a, a survey conducted by uh, scholars at Cornell uh, relatively recently that showed that enlistment into the Viet Cong spite whenever the bombing of a certain area mm. became more intense. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the, basically yeah. the more you bomb, the easier it was for the for the Viet Cong to yeah. recruit yeah. fighters and partisans. Interesting, so, interesting. So um, we're starting to uh, push the limits of time, but uh, could you say a few words on uh, your discussion on the Tet Offensive? Because this is also something many of the listeners will be familiar with. And yeah. What's 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 what did you discover about the the North Vietnamese Communist Party's perspective on the Tet Offensive? So so you know when 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 we think about the Tet Offensive in the U.S. right or in the West, it's like is the turning point of the war, stroke of genius by the communists. You know they that's where they 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 win the war right. This they 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 deal this big psychological blow to the United States. The reality is the outcome we get is never the one that was intended by. North Vietnamese policymakers, mm -hmm. when they launched this offensive, and this is not Zap's, this is Lei Zuan's offensive. Yeah. Yeah. Vong and Zap is actually against it. He's right. against it. Right. Lei Zuan wants this. And, and, and his goal is to basically achieve a decisive military victory. He's going all out. He's going for broke to win this one, to win the war once and for all. Right. And of course, militarily, it's a disaster. It's a complete disaster. But we have the documents where, where the authorities outline their plan for the attack and what and the goals it's intended to achieve. And, and they're purely military objectives, right? There's nothing about, about, about a, a, a favorable diplomatic or political outcome. This is, this, is, this is intended as a military campaign intended to satisfy purely military objectives. On those counts, it fails miserably. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking about they 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 commit approximately a hundred thousand troops to the effort, and about half of them die. I mean, they they're not wounded; they die. About forty thousand casualties killed in action are suffered by 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 Viet Cong, North Vietnamese uh, uh, armed armed forces. But then in the U.S., these images of the embassy in Saigon being under siege, of the chief of police executing uh, a, a guy in, in, in broad daylight, turn this military disaster into a psychological victory, right? And then so and then and then and then what happens is, is interesting. Then 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 Hanoi comes out and says, well of course that was the goal all along. Look and then and then we look at it, oh man, what geniuses. Yeah. But it, it was it was really after the fact that they decide to kind of highlight the psychological impact, which which was never in the plans for the attack. What was the impact of the Tet Offensive on the National Liberation Front, on the, the so-called Viet Cong, Southerners who are 
fighting in the guerrilla forces as opposed to the PAVN, the regular army of North Vietnam. It completely decimates them. Destroys it, the it destroys them. And then, and then and then you have something. So so and, and like Viet Cong units are completely gutted as a result of that offensive. So much so that to keep some units operational, the North Vietnamese army starts lending its soldiers to the Viet Cong. And 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 so and and as you know, right after Tet, Nixon is elected, and then we have this process of Vietnamization of the American war effort, mm-hmm. right? So as Americans are pulling out, South Vietnamese soldiers and Marines are doing more and more of the fighting. What's happening on the other side is you have what I call a northernization of the North of, of, of the communist war effort. With the Viet Cong being really decimated, you have more and more northerners now doing the fighting, which which gives Hanoi more control. Because I mean there's all, the, the National Liberation Front is not under as direct control of Hanoi as they probably as Lezuan would have liked, right? No, you're right. I mean, it's it, it's it's always it was always kind of a, a problematic. It was created by Hanoi, but it, it, it sometimes it would have a mind of it, its own. It's in the south, yeah. and they're southerners, and they're they're doing their own thing. They're not, not rank and file part of the military. But but the the, the big concern for Hanoi is yeah. this though is that is that now sort of after Tip, you have more and more southerners fighting on one side against more and more northerners fighting on the other and 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 essentially we have a state of civil war mm-hmm. and it's not it's not it's it, and it's really north vietnamese against south vietnamese that's the We're, real civil war after yeah, after, after 71 72 it's, it's starting in 69 with vietnamization okay. And, okay. And, 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 and in the post it and and this civil war that was hanoi's big fear yeah cuz cuz you know remember right hanoi's main goal is national reunification oh, so they, hanoi would rather fight american troops than a legitimate south vietnamese absolutely yeah. for for i mean it looks much better domestically mm. And it looks much better internationally, but the moment you you know you start killing other Vietnamese, that's when your cause loses much legitimacy. And to illustrate my point, right, Hanoi never had a hard time motivating soldiers to go to the south to kill Americans. After '69, as Americans are getting out of the picture, Hanoi is struggling with this so much so that it starts lying to its forces, saying that the Americans aren't really leaving. I found this great document. In the Canadian archives, uh, from from 1973, by which point the Americans have completely left Vietnam. The last U.S. combat forces left in March 73. So, so this North Vietnamese kid, a soldier, gets captured in June of 73, right? And then he's detained by the South Vietnamese authorities. And then the Canadians are part of this commission that 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 that's supposed to look after. Prisoners make sure they're okay. So, so I found a report in the Canadian archives. So this Canadian guy goes and meets with the POW, this North Vietnamese prisoner of war. And he says, are you well treated? Are they torturing you? This and that, blah, blah, blah. And then, and then when he's done with this interrogation, he asks the kid, the North Vietnamese soldier, do you have any questions for me? And the Canadian said, uh, the, 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 the kid says, well, actually, sir, I have one question for you. Like when I left Hanoi seven months ago, they told me I'd be fighting and killing Americans. Uh, before I got captured, I'd been here for four months. I never saw an American. Like, where are they? And the Canadian says, well, since the signing of the Paris Agreement, 
uh, American soldiers have gone home. The last troops left in March of 1973. And, and, and the kid says, you're lying to me. The Canadian says, no, listen, like, you know, there was an agreement signed. No, the kid says, there was no agreement signed. You're lying to me and leave. But you see, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. even though, so Hanoi keeps lying because it needs to motivate its soldiers. And Hanoi understands that it's much easier to motivate a kid by telling him you're going to be killing Americans than by telling him you're going to the South, you're going to be killing other Vietnamese. Wow, that's fascinating. So, so yeah, yeah it's, 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 so, so, yeah, it's deceptive. There's no question about it. It's deceitful. But does it work? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. They win. They yeah. win in the end. So, so, and you know, war is war, right? You do what you need to. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, this is fantastic and a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Um, before we let you go, uh, what are you working on now? What's what's the next so project? So I'm, I'm 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 working on what I call a history of the global Vietnam War. Huh? I'm essentially right. So so you know we talk about World War One, World War Two, and their global implications. I'm going to try to do that with the Vietnam War to show that when you look at at at, at the Cold War era. No war had had more dramatic implications on the entire world than than the war in Vietnam. So I'm going to look at the war itself, but then I'm going to look at its impact on American society, its impact on Western European society, its impact on the communist bloc, and then its impact on the third world. So so how Vietnam inspires revolutionaries in Nicaragua, for example, right? Yeah. How yeah. Vietnam contributes to the implosion of the socialist camp. How Vietnam is responsible for the rise of Euro communism, right? And how Vietnam has an impact, let's say, on the civil rights movement in the U.S. or the feminist movement, and so on and so forth. So just look at the at the Vietnam War as as a kind of a global conflagration. How how it impacted a Canadian teenager uh, <laughs> when he saw the second Rambo film. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but you know, but the impact on popular culture, yeah, the impact yeah. on music, and so but, well, watch watch the original Hawaii Five O series. And the the Vietnam background to that is so interesting and so important. Is that as, right? As is the relationship with the People's Republic of China. It's very, very interesting. That's interesting. The, the writers were very savvy. I've, I've actually written about it. Um, I'll, I'll send you the piece. But it's um, it's there and in the background. It's really important. And, you know, I, I grew up on Oahu. And thinking about my childhood, I grew up in a militarized culture yeah, because yeah, of the yeah. war. I mean, we were the one of the main staging bases for the war. Yeah. My, my home island. And... Um, that's an unusual childhood. We don't we don't think about that in the same yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. That's true. Well, right? that, that's fantastic. Um, I, I will let you go so you can get to work on that book, <laughs> publish it, and we'll get you back on the podcast, okay? Sounds good, Mike. Okay, thank you so, very much for having me. Oh, thank you. This was great. So, again, I'm Michael Van. This has been a conversation with Pierre Asselin on his new book, Vietnam's American War, A History. This has been a, a podcast for New Books in History on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.